Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Good morning, my friends. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. You should know, as I was preparing this week, I was mindful of the fact that tomorrow I'm leaving for a week's vacation. And so as I was digging in, I was thinking, we could go long because I can rest all week. (laughs) So this may go a little longer. It's about 10 pages longer in notes than normal, but it should be fun. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, open up our eyes, our hearts to see and to receive. Lord, uh, give me the words to speak and the heart from which to speak them. Lord, to to be a blessing to your people and use your word to minister, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we are in uh, picking up in verse 28. It's our third study now in uh, chapter 10. And it's always good to look at the context of things. And so remember the context of where we are. Jesus has in verse 1, he is leaving the area of the Galilee and he's making his way down to Jerusalem. And that might be a trip that takes weeks uh, to get down there. And he's heading down to that. And in the process of that, people come into contact with him. And so in the opening verses, we see that there are these Pharisees that want to debate with him and and so on. And then uh, what we looked at last week was this rich young ruler, seemingly a very sincere individual that comes to Jesus to know, has questions. I've done everything I've been told to do, and yet there's this sense still within me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus speaks with him and interacts with him. And here now, as we come to verse 28, we're, we're still on that pathway uh, to make our way to Jerusalem for the Lord. And so picking up now in, uh, well, let me go back to verse 21 for a second. Remember what Jesus told that man, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow after me. And as we saw in verse 22, the man was disheartened by that statement. It says that he had many possessions. In reality, those many possessions had possession of him. They had grabbed his heart, held on to his heart. And if it was a matter of giving those things up and following the Lord, that was quite a, uh, a dilemma that he found himself in as far as his willingness to actually do so. And that, that led Jesus to say in verse 23, you can read the words there perhaps in your Bible on the screen, where Jesus looks around at, his, at the people perhaps leaving, the man leaving, and he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Because again, he tells this man, leave it all. Now, I bring it back up again because there's the immediate context of things. So Jesus says, leave everything, come follow me. Now notice what Peter says there in verse 28. He says, uh, Peter began to say, see, Lord, we have left everything to come follow you. So there's a direct correlation, a connection between what Jesus had told this man and that interaction and Peter's response to it. We see that. It would have been ideal if we stayed here another 20 minutes, perhaps last week, and, and put these two together. But you start giving me looks. I see them. All right. And so I, I figured, all right, we're done. All right. So he says, see, we have left everything, Peter says, and we have come uh, to follow you. It seems as if Peter gets this point. He gets this idea. Okay, so Jesus, you're saying give up everything. We did that, Lord. We, we've given up everything. Uh, and he, he'll go on from there and he'll ask the question, what, what do we get? Now, as I'm reading this, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Because it almost seems like one of those things where it's like, yeah, you shouldn't really be asking those questions, Peter. You know, some, like his mom should have told him this when he was younger. You know, you don't ask those things. You can think of them, we all do, but don't ask them. Uh, But Peter does. And so I'm wondering as I'm reading this, okay, why bring it up? Is Peter looking for like a pat on the back? Yeah, that's Shmo. He didn't, but we did, Lord. Here's my back. You know, can you give it a pat here? Is he looking for Jesus to say, oh, Peter, if only there were more people like you. You know, this world would be a better place or something. Is that what Peter's looking for? It could be. 
Peter has put his foot in his mouth in other times, and he has said things like that, where you're like, oh my gosh, Peter, I can't believe you're thinking that. And so it could be that. If you look at the Matthew account, that's where we get those words, what then will we have? All right, Mark doesn't say that. It's in the Matthew account where he'll go on, he'll say, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And I think it's helpful to have those words. And that's why it's so good, so important to look at all the parallel passages. In this case, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have the three passages of this account. It's always good to look at them just to get a little insight, perhaps, that maybe is missing from one of the witnesses. But it it gives us some insight into his response. So let's pick up there. Starting in Mark, verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. I'll begin with a statement that I'm going to say a few times today, and that is this. It is to follow Christ means to share in the blessings he provides. It also means to share in the many difficulties that he bore. To follow Christ means to share in the many blessings he provides. It also means to share in the many difficulties that he bore. And as a follower of Christ, we are burdened with certain burdens that would never be ours if we didn't uh, choose to name the name of Christ. Would you agree with that? There's plenty of things we bring on ourselves that would never be our circumstances that we would have to deal with if we had not become a follower of Christ. And as the scripture teaches, the follower of Christ is often despised just because they're a follower of Christ. You have no doubt experienced that, where people will say, well, I I know your people. I know you type of people. And so they hate you, and you don't even know me. You haven't even talked to me. You don't know anything about my opinion on that particular issue, and yet you've determined, and you're despised because you name the name of Christ. Jesus said it was going to be that way. Jesus said following him will open yourself up to persecution. Amen? Isn't that great? Oh, yeah, this is a wonderful study we're having here today. Every one of these disciples that are walking along this path with Jesus, every one of them would go on to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, either by being martyred and killed, or in the case of John, they tried to martyr and kill him, but he didn't die. And so they eventually, they exile him to Patmos. But he became a persecuted individual to the end of his days, living up into the age of 90 and beyond. And on two different occasions now, Jesus has pointedly told his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be killed, and I'll rise again. And as far as these disciples know, you've read the story, they haven't read the story. As far as these disciples know, they're going to go and be killed too. Or at least they're going to be arrested or something's going to happen to him because they are the closest disciples to the Lord. And Thomas, we all know Doubting Thomas. Remember, Thomas is out in the streets when Jesus comes to appear to the disciples. You remember that? And then Thomas comes back and he says, unless I touch his hands, I'm not going to believe it. And now he has the name Doubting Thomas for the rest of this guy's life. Well, everybody else is hiding. He's out in the streets. We talk about courage. He had some courage there. This is what Thomas said in John when Jesus says we're going down to Jerusalem and they knew the people were on the lookout for him. Thomas called the twins, said to, to his fellow disciples, well, let us also go that we may die with him. That's pretty courageous, isn't it? They anticipated, they expected that something was going to go down with the Lord and it may go down with them as well. But again, as we see in other places, they didn't get the whole thing. They didn't have the whole thing figured out. But Thomas is ready. If I have to go die, I'll go die. Who's with me? Cricket, cricket, you know, but they all went. So they were all with him. And these guys, they were fully in, fully committed. And so Jesus says to them, essentially, look, be encouraged. No one who leaves house or family or land in order to come and follow me is going to lose out on the deal. That's what Jesus essentially says. No one who gives up all of this stuff on one side is not going to be without or not receive all of this stuff on the other side. He encourages his disciples that no one's going to lose out on this particular deal. And so again, to go back to that statement, to follow Christ not only means to share in the blessings of Christ, but also in the difficulties of Christ. 
Here we emphasize the idea of sharing in the joy, as Jesus says here. Now, I want to take notice of the types of rewards for those that name the name of Christ and follow Christ. There's two types if you look here. One of those we might call eternal rewards, future rewards, things we will receive when we leave here on this earth, and others of those we might call present rewards, things we can expect here on the earth. And so again, if you look at verse 30 there, toward the conclusion of our verses that we, we just read, he talks about uh, in the age to come, eternal life. I think that's what we oftentimes think about. My reward for following Jesus is I get to go to heaven. And all the difficulties that I have to put up with here, you know, they don't even compare. I'll get to go to heaven. And there's some truth to that. But notice Jesus also points out present rewards for following him. He, the phrase that he uses is in this time. Things we will experience because we are following Jesus Christ in this time. He says to you there, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brother, mother or father, children or lands for my sake in the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time. And so in the future we'll experience eternal life, but in the present there are rewards. And Jesus promises that those who have had to leave house to follow him or lands to follow him or brothers and sisters, father or mother or children to follow him he promises that they will receive back a hundredfold in this life. Now, does this mean that everyone that makes a profession of faith will suddenly find themselves possessing multiple homes, a hundred of them, or multiple plots of land? Well, if it does mean that, then it also means that at your next family dinner, you better prepare a bunch more plates because you're going to have multiple moms and multiple fathers and multiple brothers and sisters and multiple children there as well. I don't think that's what Jesus was implying, that you're going to get a lot of land or houses for following him. His point is that he will replace whatever has been lost or left behind for the sake of following him with something far greater than that which has been left behind. And many of us, I, I know a lot of you pretty well here in this room, many of us have come to experience that very thing. That because as a result of our decision to follow Christ, family members, physical family members of ours, have decided, you know what, I'm not really interested in having much to do with you anymore. And they have rejected you. Maybe literally, physically, don't come around here anymore, or perhaps socially. And so now you become the weird cousin at the family dinners. And people don't invite you to things any longer because you're probably, you know, you're gonna give that disapproving look, they think. Or you're gonna say something and so they don't want anything to do with you and they write you off. Some of you have experienced that. I know some in here whose uh, husband or wives have left them because of their decision to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said that that sort of thing would occur. Now, do they lose out in the bargain? Though it's hard, of course, Jesus said you'll never lose out in the bargain. Now, in another place, Jesus said this. Matthew 10, he said, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said that would be the case. And here in Mark, Jesus tells us, look, if you've had to leave family to follow Christ, what you're going to discover is an entire or an even greater family is yours. You'll discover an even greater family of spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in your life. And so, if you've been in the faith a little bit, you've no doubt come to discover that very truth. Amen? Can you, can you agree to that? A new family scattered all over the world. I've had the pleasure of going literally all over the world, interacting with Christians and things like that. And let me tell you, there's nothing sweeter than going to some distant land where you have nothing in common with the people that live in that little hut that you end up with, and then to be united with them as a brother or sister in the faith. I remember one time I was over in Africa, in, back in 2000, a long, long time ago. And I got sick while I was there. And this little older lady, I was probably like 40 or whatever, but I was 20, and so she seemed old. 
but this little old lady essentially began to care for me physically like my mom would back here uh, in the States. And she did it because of the love of Christ that was in her and the union of the Holy Spirit that we shared in Jesus. You have family that is all over the world. I've had women in the church or older women in the church that have essentially served as my mom, my spiritual mom, throughout the history of my walk with Jesus, caring for me, encouraging me, blessing me in the Lord Jesus. Brothers in the faith that you just love, and you're closer to them than you are to your own physical brothers in the faith. In my case, I have only brothers at home. The Lord is good, and he is faithful. I think of the little kids that run around this place that essentially have become like, like nephews and nieces to me. Let their mom and dad be the parent. <laughs> but they become like family to us. Look what the Lord does. He blesses us. I remember a time when I was over in Mexico, and our plan, we were with a group of people. Barb, you might have been on that trip, I forget. Uh, and our plan was we would come home the morning of and catch our plane at like 10 a.m., and one of the pastors there, he said, what time's your flight? I said, 10 a.m. tomorrow. When are you leaving? I don't know. We're thinking about 6, 7 in the morning. He said, what? He said, you could be at the border for eight hours. You got to go tonight. I said, well, you know, I, there's nowhere to stay in San Diego tonight. And he said, let me make some calls. And so he comes back 20 minutes later. There's a lady. She said she'd put, put you up. I said, there's 10 of us. She said, she said, it's cool. They said, come by the church. They're having dinner at 6, and then you could stay at that lady's house. Were you there? The lady with the parrot? Yeah, it was freaky, you know, <laughs> whatever. I'm like, I don't want to stay here, or whatever. And she loved us. The church loved us. They fed the group of us there. It was so cool because we had a bunch of kids with us, young people that were with us, and they got to see the church be the church and love each other well. It's so sweet. It's just so good. Jesus promises that here. Mother, father, brothers, sisters, far more. Now, of course, we love our moms. We love our dads. We love our brothers, sisters. We want to see them come to the Lord. So our heart attitude is not, I don't care about you people. I got a better family than you. I mean, then now you're like, no, now you're a jerk. Let's go talk about that, you know, and kind of thing. But this reality is if your decision to follow Christ is stopped, by, oh, no, what will this do to my family? I remember talking with a young person years and years ago, and she said, I really like what you're saying. I was talking about Jesus. She said, I really like what you're saying, but I could never follow the Lord in the way that you were following the Lord because my family would disown me. We're very, and she named some religion that she was a part of. And for her, she had made her decision. I'm hoping that God will continue to work in her heart. But for her, her family became more important to where Jesus might lead her. Jesus said you must be willing to give those things up. Now, notice Jesus also promises persecution. How fun. Wait a minute. Where's the houses? Where's the land? Let's talk more about that. And he says you also have in this world persecution. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Notice that. What does tribulation normally do to us? It causes a lack of peace. But Jesus says, I'm not talking about whether you have tribulation or don't have tribulation. I'm talking about whether you have me. He says, in me, you will have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. In another place, Jesus said, if they have persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so the reality is, in this age, we will share in the difficulties that Christ experienced while he was here on the earth. And, of course, we hear that and we say, oh, I don't know if I like that. Believe it or not, persecution is actually a good thing. Persecution purifies the church. Persecution purifies us. I shared this a while ago. When the nation of India obtained its uh, freedom from colonialism in the 1940s, Gandhi, all those things you heard of, there became this struggle amongst the Hindu people of the area and the Muslim people of the area. And then there was a small minority of people, about 2% of the people, that named the name of Jesus. And so it really became an issue. Are we going to become a Hindu nation? Are we going to become a Muslim nation? And people began to ask, well, what to do with the Christians? And some decided, we'll persecute them. We'll just run them out of here. They can either convert or they can get out. And the, em the not emperor, the uh, president, prime minister, whoever uh, went on to become the first, we'll just call him prime minister, I forget the term they use there, prime minister of India. It wasn't Gandhi. It was actually a fellow by the name of Nehru. And Nehru said, leave him alone. Like, what do you mean leave him alone? No, you got to take a stand. He said, leave him alone because when you persecute the church, the Christians, their numbers grow. You leave them alone, they get comfortable, they're fine, everything is great. Persecution is actually good. 
for a church and for you. It makes it, it's a, it's able to cause you to think a little bit clearer about do I really believe this? Do I really want to follow this? Do I really want to take a stand for this? That's what persecution does. And the Bible says that it is good, that good comes from the difficulties that are associated with persecution. We read in Romans 5, it says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame because God's love is poured out. Suffering has the effects, and with persecution comes suffering. It has the effect of producing endurance, character, and hope. And those are good qualities for us to possess. And the Lord knows that. And so he allows those things. He allows difficulties to accomplish his purposes. Regarding persecution, in another place he said this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you as if something strange was occurring in your life. But he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, he goes on to say. These things, persecution, difficulties in this life, they shouldn't surprise us, as he says there, as if something strange were occurring in our lives. And then one last place, what does Romans 8.28 tell us? You know the verse, most of us. It says, and we know this that all things work together for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That God can use even these twisted, like, why is this happening? How could this be any good, Lord? And that God can use it. Amen? Amen. Now, Jesus goes on in our verse, and you'll have to wait. He goes on, and he says, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That's, so from Mark, we go right from uh, this statement about these promises to that statement. Matthew's account of this event tells us that in between those two statements, that Jesus shared a parable. He shared the parable of what we oftentimes call the laborers in the vineyard. You know the story, perhaps, uh, where this fellow has to have his vineyard, whatever they do, plucked or something like that. He had, farmers need to, laborers need to go out there and do harvest, I guess, the vineyard. And he hires some at 10 in the morning and a few at 11 in the morning and some later in the afternoon and some right before quitting time. And when it's all said and done, he pays them all equally. And the people are like, yo, that ain't fair. Well, what did I tell you I was going to pay you? You said 20 bucks. What did I give you? 20 bucks? Well, then go away. All right, he says, well, what's not fair about it? I gave you exactly what I was going to give you. That's the parable of the laborer and the vineyards. Matthew tells us that going right from this promise Jesus makes about mother, brothers, fathers, and so on, and this statement, the last will be first, the first will be as the last, Jesus makes that, uh, that parable that we have there. And it's a powerful illustration for us of God's ability to reward his servants in unusual and unexpected ways. Did those guys that came in at five get, expect to get paid exactly what the guy that's been out there all day got paid? Certainly not. That's unusual. It was unexpected. But the parable is about the way in which God is able to reward his servants in unusual and unexpected ways. It's one more paradox that Jesus has been sort of laying out for what it means to be in this world but not of this world. To be a leader in the kingdom of God, a servant, is to be a servant in the kingdom of God. What? what? That doesn't make sense. In the, in the world, leaders are in charge. They order people around. They, they call someone who bends down on the ground. They can put their feet up on their back. That's what a real leader does. Jesus says, no, it's completely opposite in the kingdom. He says, the last will be uh, first, and the, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And the point of it is this. Here's your takeaway. All right? It's not just an interesting thing to know. Oh, okay, good, I'll file that away. It goes beyond that. What your takeaway is this. It means this. As a follower of Christ, you can let go. You don't have to constantly worry about, as they're going to ask in a few minutes, if you can sit on the right side or the left side so you can be in charge. You don't have to worry about those things. You can let go. It means you don't have to worry about if... Uh, if uh, others in this world are going to reject you. doesn't even matter any longer. Or about jockeying for position. Have you ever lived life that way? 
constantly worried if people are going to notice you so you could get that promotion or you could be the more popular one and everything you do now is centered around jockeying for position? You don't have to live your life throwing elbows so you can get ahead and others can fall behind. You can just simply let go and you can live your life in such a way that pleases God. There's such a freedom in that and Jesus knows that. And so he says this to them, let go of the reins, trust in me and go and do what I'm leading you to do without any worries about well, where's this going to lead and what am I going to get out of it and so on and so forth. Let go of the reins. I just think that's so important. That's something I ministered in my heart this week as I was considering these things about just trusting, your, entrusting yourself to the Lord and the freedom that comes with that. Let's go on to verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and James was walking ahead of them. Excuse me. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So they're, they're going from Galilee to Jerusalem, as I've been saying. This is the last time in his earthly life here, before the resurrection, that Jesus will be up in the Galilee region, his home. And he's going down to Jerusalem. He's gone down to Jerusalem pretty much every year, uh, probably of his life, certainly of his ministry. But this will be the last time he leaves Galilee to go to Jerusalem because, as he says there, they're going to deliver him over to the chief priests and scribes. And they're going to betray him. They're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, all those things that are listed there. And then ultimately, they're going to kill him. Now, as you see here, I, I try to put myself in this picture, this circumstance. I, I've used this sort of uh, kind of this analogy of if we were sort of sitting on the side of a hill watching these things, what we see is Jesus on the road, that Jesus seems to be separated from the rest of the disciples. He's just a little bit off ahead of them, and he's kind of alone with his thoughts, perhaps likely probably praying as well. And the disciples sense that something's going down with the Lord, and they, they kind of pull themselves back. They give the Lord a little bit of space here. You'll see there in verse 32, it says that they're both amazed and they're afraid. That they, they don't, This is a different experience for them. They're amazed and they are afraid. Now, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, none of them tell us exactly what it was that amazed them or what it was that caused them to be afraid. So it's, it's just conjecture on my part. But the context of things seems to be indicating that there's a new sobriety that has overtaken the Lord, that there, there's something about his face that they see sort of his uh, steadiness of purpose. I quoted last week, maybe two weeks ago, the prophet Isaiah, who said that the Messiah set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jesus is the Messiah. I think it's reasonable to conclude that his face has been set like a flint like a stone. It's rock, if you will. And he's pulled away from the group, it seems, so that he could, that he's pondering things, thinking about things, praying about things. We know in another place that he spent the night praying for his disciples. Perhaps he's doing that as he walks there. But something about his demeanor is different, and the disciples, they notice that. And so, going a little bit further here in this process, he now say, he says, hey, guys, everybody, let's just sit down here for a minute. Or everybody group up. We'll keep walking, but I want to talk to you. Everybody get near me here for a second. He gathers the group, and he reveals to them what's going to happen to him when he gets there to Jerusalem. Again, in 33, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's the term Jesus used to describe himself as Messiah. The Son of Man will be delivered over to those chief priests and scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death which means he's going to be turned over to the Romans because the Jews couldn't uh, condemn a person to death. So they had to give him over to the Romans, and that is what's going to bring in the flogging and all of that, which the Romans did. We know the Romans mocked him when they put a, a robe upon him and say, you're the king of the Jews, aren't you? And then they blindfold him, and they, they hit him. Tell us who hit you, you know, and, and all these kinds of things. They just mocked the Lord in that whole process. And you'll notice... Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of him in Jerusalem. 
And I've been trying to make this point here. What happened in Jerusalem wasn't an accident. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. And he didn't just sort of generically know, yeah, we're going to get to Jerusalem. It's foggy what's going to happen, but I'm going to die and rise again. He knew exactly what was going to happen. I, I imagine in my mind as he's walking, all of this, though it's future, is just sort of passing through the mind of the Lord. And he's seeing the whole experience that is going to be ahead of him in this process here in his mind's eye. And yet notice he's determined to go. That's what the statement, his face was like a flint. That, that's what his statement was. I'm getting in there and nothing's stopping me. I'm going there. He was determined to go to Jerusalem because that was the reason why he had come. Jesus came to this earth as a little baby so that 30-some years later, he could die on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. And all of the other stuff, the teaching and things like that, that in some regards, it's superfluous. He came that he might die on a cross. Now, it's Luke's account that will go on to tell us that despite that very clear description, I'm going to go, they're going to turn me over, they're going to mock me, spit on me, flog me, kill me. Despite that very, very clear description, Jesus told us three times, told these disciples three times he was going to Jerusalem and these things were going to happen. This one is the most clear description of what's going to happen. And it talks about spitting, it talks about mocking, it talks about chief priests and scribes. And it's the, the clearest of all of the, the prophecies, predictions we have from the Lord here. And despite it, Here's what Luke tells us, but they understood none of these things because the saying was hidden from them so that they could not grasp it. Despite that very clear description, they just didn't get it still. And I think that becomes very, very clear. Look at the next thing we have in the Mark passage here. Starting in verse 35, it says, Now James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Isn't that nice? Remember your kids come up and say that? And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized, he says there? And they said, sure, no problem. They said, yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, look, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But as far as sitting on my right hand and my left hand, that's not mine to grant, but for those to whom it has been prepared. And so I, I say earlier, it, clearly they didn't, like Luke said, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, because who would ask such a thing immediately following the things that Jesus said? And yet they do. And so Jesus is telling them he's about to be delivered over condemned and killed, and their response is, mm, mm, that's tough. So anyway, we were talking, you know, that's their response. Like, oh my gosh, like how could you go there? Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. We're not going to tell you what it is, we just want you to agree, and then when we tell you, you have to say yes. Matthew, interesting, he throws John and James's mother under the, under the bus and says that she's involved in the whole scenario, that she's actually the one that comes. It says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Jesus, I want you to do whatever I ask for my boys. And that they're there like, yeah, whatever, yeah. yeah. Right? And so they're all involved in this, and Jesus is really sweet, very, very graciously. You want me to do what I'm just, he, he doesn't get mad doesn't get angry, doesn't scold them. He says, sure. He says, and what is it you would like me to do? What, what is it you need? He says. And their answer, we read it. Let us sit one on your right hand and one on your left when you come into your glory. Oh, is that it? Is that all you want? To be the number two and the number three guy in the kingdom of my glory? You just, you just want me to give you that here? Now, of course, in their mind... They have in mind the day when Jesus will be firmly established on their throne. That's what they mean by the phrase, in your glory. When you come and you're the king of the world, can we sit one on your left side, one on your, your right side? Despite the fact that for months now, Jesus has been talking about a different place in mind altogether, 
that his glory would be when he gave his life on behalf of others, despite him telling that many, many times here, they're missing all of that. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be despised and rejected. They have in their mind that somehow that's going to turn all around and a throne pops out. And so they want to sit, one on the right side and one on the left. They're thinking about his political kingdom. And so they ask for positions, high positions in that political kingdom. The place of honor was the seat on the right side. The most dear individual to the one on the throne was on the left side. And so they're asking, could we be on your right side? Could we be on your left side? Sharing the place of honor and the place of uh, love, if you will. Prestigious places. Jesus responds in verse 38 here. He says, you don't know what you're asking. They're thinking about being on his side in glory. Jesus is thinking about the cross. And Jesus will have on his right side and on his left side two individuals that were crucified there with him. Of course, this is not what the disciples have in mind because no one in their right mind would ask to be placed there. And Jesus says that. You don't know what you're asking. And he follows it up by saying, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That refers to the suffering that he's about uh, to undertake. Are you able to undertake the baptism that I uh, will undergo? And that baptism, the word there, don't think about the, the ritual that we do. Think about the word baptism, it means that immersion. Jesus is going to be immersed into death, essentially. Are you able to undergo suffering? Are you able to undergo the death that I'm going to uh, undergo myself? And you see how quickly they respond. Clearly, they don't understand. Sure, no problem. We're able, they say there. Now, little do they know that they will. James will be the first martyr, well, second of the apostles there. He'll be the first uh, of those to be killed. We read about in Acts chapter 12. Earlier, we, we read that Stephen is martyred. Um, but James is the first of these apostles that will be killed. Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, Herod rose up and killed James, the brother of John. And when everyone cheered about it, then he went to kill Peter too. But the Lord delivered Peter. John, as I said earlier, was never actually martyred for the faith. But that doesn't mean that the Romans didn't try. John, we, we know historically, it's not in our Bibles, but John was boiled alive in, um, in oil. And yet it didn't kill him or whatever. And then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And the Lord revealed to him there what we call the book of Revelation. And he was eventually released from the island of Patmos. And he, he took up residence in the city of Ephesus. And he ministered way into his 90s, uh, way into, I should say, 90 A.D., in, or, yeah, A.D., um, many, many years, 60-some years after the death of Christ, he ministered. Uh, and so he lived out his days serving the Lord with great suffering. And so James and John, they did drink the cup that Jesus drank. They did undergo the baptism that Jesus underwent here. But they didn't know what they were saying. They didn't know what's going down here. And so they quickly say, sure, we can handle all of that. They're thinking about being seated in glory when they say what they say. Now, the account goes on. Verse 41, it says, now, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Indignant means angry, mad, frustrated. I can't believe you. And Jesus called them and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Very similar to what we read back in chapter 9, when a similar circumstance went down here. But you'll notice a few things here. In, as a result of James and John's desire um, for position. If you look at verse 32, go back to verse 32 for a second, you'll notice there that it speaks of the 12. You see that there, and taking the 12 again. Now here we are in verse 41, and we're reading about the 10. And it talks about the 10 and James and John, the 10 and the 2. And what has happened in the midst of this little band of brothers? Division has occurred. And what brought about that division? James and John's unnecessary desire for advancement within their little group there. And that's the same thing that continues on in our day. In, in 41, the 10, they hear about the two, 
and now they're mad at them because they have so much nerve to think that they should be number two and number three in the kingdom. Now, why are they angry? Because they want to be number two and number three in the kingdom. I was thinking earlier, when I was a freshman in high school and I had an opportunity to play high school sports or whatever it may be, oh, I'm just a freshman. But you're going to put a freshman in the starting lineup unless, you know, there's somebody good. And I was not. And I was just a normal kid or whatever. And so when the coach gave out the lineup, and I wasn't starting at this position or that position or batting at this place in the lineup or that place in the lineup, it didn't bother me at all because I didn't expect to be in that place in the lineup anyway, and I shouldn't have been in that place in the lineup. But when I was a junior, when I was a senior, and I was having more opportunities, and now I'm not in that particular place, now it bothers me. Why? Because I expect to be in that place, Scott. He's our coach for softball. I expect to be in that spot in the lineup. You see, because I feel like I deserve that. That's where I want to be. These disciples are mad at the others because they feel like they deserve to be number two in the kingdom, number three in the kingdom. And so they get angry uh, at James and John. They're offended by James and John. Somebody wrote this. They said, a man's character is shown by the things that provoke his strongest reactions. These guys are provoked, and it reveals an aspect of their character. It reveals that just as much as James and John, who actually said it, these guys are thinking it somewhere deep down in their hearts. They want to be somebody in the kingdom. And so Jesus realizes, um, we got to go over this again? Everybody come on in. Bring it in. Take a knee. Stop it. You know, he said, we got to do a teaching. And he's going to do another teaching here. And he says to them, uh, you know that those who are, and I, I like this, considered rulers, you know, they think they're rulers. He said, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, and they were, that was their title and all that, they lord it over others, and their great ones exercise authority over others. He says here, that phrase, exercise authority, it means to wield, this is what it means, this is crazy, it means to wield power for the sake of wielding power. Can you picture what we're talking about? It's the person that comes in and has to let everybody know I'm in charge here. So everybody stand up. Everybody stands up. All right, now you can sit down because I'm in charge here. I just want to make sure you all know it. They wield power for the sake of wielding power so they can show everyone who's in charge. James and John, Jesus says, you know what? All of you, he says to the disciples, why do you want to sit on the throne to my left and my right? Answer my question. Why is it you want to sit on my throne or on the throne to my left and to my right? To my right. It's hard to say. What's your motivation, he says to them. Because is your motivation so that you can serve others more? Is that your motivation? Or is it so that others might recognize you as an important person and serve you? What's your motivation? He says, are you thinking like the Gentile rulers who wield power just to wield power? Or are you thinking like one of my disciples who honestly desires to be a servant to others. He says there in verse 43, he says, look, that kind of thinking, like the Gentiles, such thinking shall not be so among you. And so again, in the Gentile world, greatness is based on the number of people that serve you. But in Christ, greatness is based on the number of people you serve. It's completely flipped up on its head. And Jesus goes on, he says, whoever would be great among you must be servant of all. Whoever would be first among you must become the slave of all. Now, what's our problem as Christians? We might say, all right, I got to serve people, got to serve people. But what begins to develop in our hearts? When's that slave of the year ceremony? You know, I've been, I've been serving really good. When are they going to acknowledge it? When am I going to get a little plaque? When are they going to bring me up in front of everybody? We wrestle with that, right? We don't want to be everybody else's servant. We'll serve them as long as it means I get to be in charge. And so we wrestle with these things. Somebody said this, the easiest way to know if you're a servant is by how you react when people treat you like a servant. And these disciples were not ready for that lesson. They weren't ready to be in that place where their being in charge meant that they were becoming the servant of all. And many of us, me, are not ready for that either. And so we've got to keep going back to the Lord. Lord, 
Work in my heart. Lord, help me to do this just to serve other people. Lord, help me to have a right heart attitude, even in the midst. We've got to keep on going back to the Lord. Jesus goes on, he concludes, and he says, look, don't look to the world as your example. Look to me as your example. And he says that in verse 45, even the Son of Man, me, Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Is that a familiar verse in our study? I think I said it now about nine times during our study. I didn't realize this. I came to discover as I was reading about this verse this week that most commentators point to this verse as the theme verse of the book of Mark. I don't know if you have a Bible that does this, but some Bibles have you memorize one verse from every book of the Bible. Kind of a fun little thing to do. One verse from every book of the Bible, and the verse that is chosen is sort of the theme verse of that book. And so, like, what's, what's the book of Mark about? Well, it's about that. It's about the Son of Man coming to give his life as a ransom because he's a servant. And you can do that with each book. It's kind of fun to do. You, maybe you could do that. And anyway, that's what they're saying. This verse is the theme verse of the book of Mark, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus points now to the supreme example of what it means for a leader to serve in that he himself would serve even unto the point of death, the death on a cross. Think about that. Jesus is the creator of all things. That's pretty cool, right? Even beyond that, I think even more significant, the Bible teaches that he is the sustainer of all things, that all things are held together by the Lord. And so he's the creator and the sustainer that holds all things together, and yet he allowed himself to be mocked and beaten and crucified and killed by the very people he is holding together and sustaining their very existences. How remarkable. Because he came to serve. And so should anything less be expected of his disciples? Should we have it better off than him? Does that make any sense? No. Jesus concludes there and he says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to go just touch on that real quickly. The idea of a ransom is some, you know, you've watched movies. It's something that is paid to provide for the release of someone who is held captive. And the Bible makes it clear that you and I, because we have sinned, we are held captive. We are held responsible for the penalty of sin, which the Bible teaches is death. And if you go back and you study through the Old Testament, what you'll discover is that God commanded the Israelites. You'll see it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's where it's introduced. That God commanded the, the Israelites to bring an animal sacrifice as a covering for their own sin. The Bible calls that substitutionary atonement, or theologians call it substitutionary atonement. And the idea behind it is, is that the animal's death would take the place of the the offerer, the person bringing the sacrifice, that the animal's death would take that person's place. So the animal would pay the price for my sin. That is, it would become a ransom on my behalf and pay the price. Now, while those sacrifices in the Old Testament sacrifice the holy demands of God, they did not do so perpetually. And so what did the sacrificer have to do? Had to keep coming back. Every single year, at least once a year, they had to come back and offer the sacrifice here. The, the author of the book of Hebrews, he said, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin or sins every year because, his conclusion, it's impossible for bulls and goats to take away sins. So you had to come back every single year. It was just a picture. It was a type pointing to something else. And that's where the sacrifice of Jesus Christ comes in. Again, going back to the book of Hebrews, it said, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the one not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place. That's like into heaven, essentially. Into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. The writer goes on, he says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, we could add maybe in parentheses temporarily, how much more the blood of Jesus Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus Christ, once and for all, as the passage says, paid the ransom of our penalty to God. And he did that in one place, on the cross of Calvary. And that, and that alone, is the means by which God has redeemed sinful man and woman unto himself. And it's the reason that Jesus came. And so this morning, every one of us in this room, every person that lives on the earth, has this opportunity presented to them, brought to them at some point in their lives. And it's the opportunity to receive the free gift of God's covering that's made possible by the work of Jesus Christ. And I just want to throw it out there. Look, if you've never done that in your life, you've never experienced the washing, the covering, the cleansing of sin in your life and in your heart, after when service is over, our elders will be up here, others will be up here. We'd love to talk with you, explain it a little bit further for you, or maybe you're even ready. Right now, you're like, I know I need it. I don't need to talk to anybody else. While we're closing out our time in song, talk to the Lord. I come to you. Your payment on the cross, I receive it, I accept it. Forgive me of my sin. Amen? Amen. The Lord loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that reality. We thank you that despite the fact that we are sinners and that sin separates from a holy God, that you love us, you desire to be in relationship with us, and you've made a way in Jesus Christ. And Father, I know lots of us in this room, we have received the gift of salvation in Christ, and now we're trying to run the race, walk the race even. And Lord, you know the tendency of our hearts is uh, to begin to look around at others and compare ourselves with others and want to be better than others. And Lord, I pray that our takeaway from today, certainly whatever it is your Holy Spirit has done in each one of our hearts, but I have to imagine at least one of the takeaways from today, Lord, is that you would give us a greater courage and faith to sort of let go of our lives so that we would allow you, Lord, to reign and to take the reins. And you'll lead. Lord, we believe that that's the place of true blessing. That's the place, the place where our heart kind of comes into harmony with your heart. Lord, we believe that's the place that ultimately each one of us was created to be at. And somewhere in the deepest depths of our being, it's what we long for. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, you would do that in a greater way even as we do our part of letting go. And we give ourselves to you afresh in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.